Thanks for listening to the New Life Church Searcy podcast. If you'd like to get connected to what God is doing at the Searcy campus, you can text the word Searcy to 88000. There you can give online, get connected to a life group, find your place in a serve team, and so much more. You can also find today's message notes in the YouVersion Bible app. Just tap the link in the episode description to follow along during the sermon and save notes directly to your phone. Now prepare your hearts to hear a great word from God today. Advent begins this morning, and I know um, a lot of you are starting uh, reading plans, and uh, you're focusing up on what this next 30 days could entail for you personally. I, I always love this, this season. It's so fast, and uh, that is the one thing that I, I despise about it is because it's here and gone, and uh, everybody gets into January uh, goals very quickly. But I believe that this should be a 30 days of a slower pace. And unfortunately, culturally, it's not. Um, I always try to have my, my Christmas shopping done um, for my family by um, November's end, uh, just so I can take this 30 days and, and kind of breathe and realize uh, where I'm at and the importance of, of the season. I think Advent kind of helps us do that. But the season is always special and it is certainly special because it's a time of reflection. I think we um, take this 30 days, whether it's intentional or not, it just kind of sneaks up on you, and we become more and more aware of where we are spiritually. And so I encourage you to embrace that. I encourage you to, to recognize where, where you are with Christ these next 30 days. This is a time where, you know, we will have people who come to church for the first time since Easter um, will come to a candlelight service. It's because of the season of reflection. They go, you know, where am I with my journey with Christ? Maybe it's, it's a 30 days where you realize you've got something in your heart that's not right, that needs to be changed or transformed. Um, it's always a good time to repent. And just come before the, the, the Lord and say, man, if there's anything in my heart or life that needs to be changed and forgiven, I want to do that right, right now. It's, it's just a sweet time. It's, it's a sweet season. And I think any time that you reflect and any time you have introspection of any kind, it can create some questions because we're looking at our, at our, our lives. It's like looking at a mirror. And James tells us that the word can be just that. Tells us that the word can be just that. We're looking at the word or you're going through a devotional or you're in a small group and suddenly that small group conversation feels like a mirror to you. You see yourself clear. Or you hear a message or uh, your, your devo keeps pointing back to your own heart. And so it becomes very reflective. And as we look at that, we get these question marks. We get ideas where we say, well, what, what about this? And what about that? And I'm never afraid of those questions. I think questions are a very good thing. And I think all of us have them. And maybe you came to church this morning with a big one. And maybe you've got it in the center of your mind or heart, and as you start Advent today, you start it with a big question, a question of why or how or where or when or what and what's next and why me and, and, and all of these things. But I want to say first that there is nothing wrong with a question. 
And I think given the way some of us were raised, question marks also meant that you simultaneously had a lack of faith. And sometimes you were taught that from the pulpit or in a Sunday school class that to have a question about God meant that you weren't believing hard enough. Like somehow I've got to stir something up and really work on believing more. And so like you just, okay, I want to believe, I want to believe, I want to believe. And, and you're trying to force yourself into this place of just greater belief. But the question you have doesn't become soothed. It doesn't get answered. It's not shaping you or growing you in a, a, a better way. And so, secondly, when we do have questions about God and about where you're at and about the why of life, um, sometimes we get terrible answers. And so, we ask people or we ask a pastor or we ask a best-selling author or we ask um, our small group. We're, 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 we're seeking it out. And sometimes the answer back to you may be terrible. It may be terrible advice, terrible counsel. And this is, is unfavorable for all of us because incorrect answers can lead to incorrect faith. And so it may be that at some point in your life you had a big looming question and someone answered it and it was answered terribly and that terrible answer became a value for you, and you built a lot of things around it. Now that you're in a different place in your life, you look back and you go, that was terrible advice. And maybe you wasted a lot of time and a lot of years and a lot of um, emotion on some advice that was not even theologically accurate. So you, you could find yourself this morning coming into Advent with some incorrect faith, at least an incorrect faith perspective, Okay. Now, when I was thinking about these things, I wrote down quickly four faith perspectives. This is not going to be the gist of, of the message. This is what I like to call the pre-sermon. And so you get two this morning for the price of one. I want to talk to these four perspectives very quick because chances are most of us are sitting in one of these perspectives, especially if you feel stuck. The first one is the wishful perspective. So your faith this morning is more from a place of wishing. Like, I, I, I wish my life were different. I wish things would change. I wish the world were kinder. I wish this, I wish that. And, and somehow in that, God, Jesus, the Spirit, the Christmas story somehow shifts into this that God is like Santa. So then we just make a wish list. And then our faith becomes this long list of things that we think if they were all completed, we would be happier or better for it or life would be more grand. And so this wish list, we are hopeful that come Christmas Day, we just get a few of those things off the wish list and for a moment you feel better or more connected or you feel more resolved or more at peace only to find out that come the next Monday or the Monday after that your list is growing again and your faith is constantly going from wish 
to wish, to wish, to wish, to wish, and you spend your whole Christianity just wishing and, 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 and hoping, and I realize that hope is certainly a spiritual thing, but the wishing part of just going, Man, my life is just one big, if I could just rub a lamp and a genie come out or God show up and say, I'm going to give you these three things, and that feels like your faith construct, okay? The second perspective is a historical perspective, and I started the year talking about this perspective and how it has invaded the modern church. The historical perspective is this, that the Bible's a great book, but it's not inspired. Like it can be inspirational, but it's not inspired by the Spirit. It's just a great historical context. Within that, it quickly becomes, or there's not a big step from that into going, if the book is just historical, then the characters within it are just historical as well. And then we get to play with it. So it becomes that maybe the story of Adam and Eve was more fable than realistic. Or maybe Noah never built an ark. And maybe Jonah was never swallowed by a fish. And maybe Elijah never called down fire from heaven. And maybe, 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 and then we run into Jesus in the New Testament. And through a historical lens, we say, well, he was a great guy. Like, there's no doubt. He was great. Science and archaeology has proved that his existence was there. However, he may not be the Son of God. That's historical context. So your faith is like, I'm inspired by church or the Jesus story, but it's, it's mostly history, right? Like it's, he was a good guy. He made some people happy, changed some lives. He had some spiritual gifts. But did he really save the world? Okay. The third is a conflicted perspective. So maybe you believe that Jesus is like living with your parents. Okay, Like you reap the benefit of provision, but you find it very hard to coexist in the same space. All right? So anytime you brush up against faith, you're like, I don't want to get into that. And anytime you brush up against something that might stretch you or shape you or be uncomfortable, you tend to back off instead of hit it head on. You enjoy going, I love taking communion. I love knowing I was baptized. I love knowing at some point in my life I prayed a prayer. I love uh, you know, taking communion. I, I love being in fellowship. But when it comes to like really looking at the question marks in my life and who has the answer for that, I'm kind of conflicted because I don't really like being told what I should do or I don't like looking at truth and going, man, that doesn't feel like it's setting me free. Um, and so you're constantly, your faith is constantly in conflict. Okay, which leads to the last one who could hold hands with conflicted. But the last one would, would be this, limited perspective. So your faith is very, very limited. It is like um, living with blinders on. You may only think about faith on Sunday. You may only think about your faith when it's 
addressed to you? Like, what do you think about this? Or maybe your spouse wants to have a spiritual conversation or your kids ask you to pray with them or something. And suddenly now, okay, whoa, I got to get back in faith mode. And you kind of come back to it. It's very limited. Maybe you believe that Jesus is not concerned about anything past your salvation. Again, you prayed a prayer, you were baptized, you joined a church, you took communion, but your story of faith feels like it ends where it began. And so you kind of find yourself in these seasons of reflection and it feels like a cycle. If you think hard enough, maybe some of you are in the same spot today that you were a year ago. And you go, because this is just my cycle. Like, this is, what I, this is what I think about during the Christmas season. This is what Thanksgiving brings up to me. This is what Easter brings up to me. This is what I do in the summer. This is what I do with our kids over spring break. This is what fall looks like, like for us. And it's go, 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 think a little about faith. Go, 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 think a little about faith. And so, Kevin, if I can just hit those highlights two or three times a year, then that's where I feel like my faith is. So, to tally that up, God may have, over the years, been miscommunicated to you if you're living in one of those four territories. And worse than that, he may have been misrepresented to you. It is a very hard and difficult thing for the church right now to walk the line because we're under the microscope. The church is under the microscope of the world. They want us to mess up. They want us to say something stupid. They want want a cliche. They want a line that they can put on Instagram. They want something that they can take away from us and spin it. And there's a lot of misrepresentation. Or you've got a whole group of people who call themselves Christians but do not do hardly anything that's in the Bible. And so you look at their lives, this is why there's a huge percentage of people who are now de-churched because they've looked at church and said, I don't think God's like that at all. I don't think God's angry all the time and you're angry all the time. I don't think God's mean and you're mean. I don't think God lies and you lie all the time. They look at our lives and they go, man, if that is what it is to follow Jesus, this is why it was such a big statement when Paul said, follow me as I follow Jesus. I mean, that is, you talk about putting a target on your back. Can you imagine? That's how confident he was. A part of me looks at the backstory and thinks what he's trying to do is say, if nobody else is going to do it, I'll do it. I'll represent him well. I'll do what the Bible says. I'll do what his words teach. I'll do it. So follow me as I follow Jesus. And I think as we look around, we look at people who have messed up or they've made a mistake or they have, as in our words in Christianese, they have fallen. And we go, man, I don't think that's what God is like at all. And it's affected you personally. And you look at that, and maybe that's one of of your, your question marks. And so... Let's be honest, following Jesus has it sometimes created a challenge for you. Maybe you look at your your journey, and at one point for you, it was not popular, okay? So maybe you got saved, gave your life to God, started this journey with Jesus, and you were amidst a very unhealthy spiritually friend group. 
So now it's unpopular for you to do the right thing. And you had to reevaluate your core group. You had to reevaluate um, what that was going to be like, like for you. This, this was my life. As a teen, I gave my heart to Christ, and I was surrounded by some of the best people. I had incredible friends, but they were not following Jesus. And one by one, I met with them, and I said, this is where I'm at. Because I'm following Christ now, and it's very hard for me to like be around all of the time because you guys do things that I no longer feel like I can be a part of, but man, I sure love you. And it came down to this thing where I was more or less like, I'm still your friend. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to pray for you. I love you. I'm here for you. But you can't just be my tribe all of the time now. I had to be around believers, people who were challenging me to grow and take this decision that I had made to the next level of following Jesus. So it was very unpopular for me. You might look at you're following Jesus and you think it's risky. I mean, you look at the plan you have for your life, and if you made a decision to follow Jesus in your late 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you had an established plan. You were married, maybe you had kids, maybe you owned owned a business, and you've got a plan. And then you look at what you feel like your heart is telling you, in the other hand, and you got a plan here, and you're like, Lord, these two plans aren't conducive. And so you've got hard decisions to make now. Follow the original plan, follow your heart. That's a big one. And it's for you, it feels risky. Also, if you look at your faith journey, you had some moments that were inconvenient for you. Okay, that's the word I came up with, what I'm about to talk about. It was inconvenient for you to think about sexual purity. Okay, I gave my heart to God. There's purity involved now. Um, I gave my heart to God. I, I got to start being truthful. Like, even the white lies need to go. The exaggeration of something need, needs to go. Wholesome talk needs to come back into my life. It was inconvenient because the Lord asked you to forgive others. He asked you to pray for your enemies. He asked you to love people who did not love you. And that feels spiritually inconvenient. Okay? When we've had these experiences, and maybe you're in one of those moments now, you have a very big question, and the question is this. Is it really worth it? And that's what I want to start Advent with, is this thought. Is it really worth it? Is it worth it for you to attend a church? To give or serve? Be faithful to that church? Is it worth it to fight through the issues of faith? Times when it seems like there are Big conflicts between your head and your heart. This makes no sense to me intellectually, but I feel it in my gut. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to go through a situation where you feel spat upon to turn around 
and show kindness and forgiveness? Or do you just want to unload all that anger in creative ways to those people? Is it worth it? See, the problem is a lot of us, we do not have a compelling answer to this, this question. And this could be because the person who explained faith for you didn't have a good answer, or you, have, you used to have a strong conviction about something, but that conviction has somewhat faded. Maybe life for you, and this is going to sound crass, so just bear with me, but life for you felt like a Christmas gift at one point. It was wrapped beautifully. It was crowned elegantly. And then someone around you got cancer. Or they died. Or someone lied to you. Or someone left you. And now you've got a question mark because where passion once thrived in you feels like passivity now. I don't care as much about it. I don't trust that as much. I don't lean into faith as much. And this puts us in a category of having on-the-fence faith or being percentage followers of Jesus, meaning this. You get up, you feel great, you think the sun is shining, I'm at 90%. Okay, I'm a 90% follower right now because I'm feeling good and I'm looking good. Then you watch the news, you're down to 50%. Then you check your bank account, maybe you're down to 30%. You just look at your life, and based on the situation, it creates the ebb and flow of faith for you. James chapter 1 and verse 8, he makes this statement, and it hits us all right in the face. He says, A double-minded man is unstable. Everybody say unstable. That word right there just feels big to me. Instability. And then he goes on to say, in all his ways. He says a double-minded man is unstable in everything he does. I love God today. May not believe as much tomorrow. These are my core values today, but tomorrow they got a little bit of bend to them. And the again, the ebb and flow of your faith is dependent upon the anxiety or the stress or your life experience. And somehow you become this double-minded person who is driven and tossed by the wind, as he will go on to say, and he comes out with it, James, the brother of Jesus, and says, if that is you, you're not just unstable in your faith. You're unstable in all of it. He says, because if you're going to bend over here in that way, then guess what? You're probably bending that way in your relationships and with your friendships and with things that a week ago you said, I'm never going to change that. But now, today, because of where you are, you're so unstable in all of it. Now, I'm almost out of time. That was my introduction today, but so I'm, I'm going I'm to skip a little bit down. John chapter 5. Some of y'all are laughing nervously. Ha, 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 ha. 
as you check the time. John chapter 5. I want to read this, and then I promise I'll speed through this as best I can. I'm not promising anything. John chapter 5. There's in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool. Let's talk about this pool a minute. It's called Bethesda. It's got five porches. Verse 3. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition a long time. And he asked this question. This is beautiful. This is one of the biggest layers of the story. I don't even have time to get into it. But he says, do you want to get well? Okay? There is a layer to that because I'm going to tell you something. Not everyone wants to be well. Some people want to stay sick because it gets them more attention than being well. Verse 7, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, here's where I'm going to focus. Someone else gets ahead of me. One version says, someone always beats me in there. And so Jesus, in verse 8, turns to him and says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And the man was cured, and he picked up his mat and walked. I want to focus on just one layer here. It's my personal opinion that this guy was asking himself the central question that I just presented to all of us. Is it worth it? I want you to imagine being sick for 38 years. I want you to imagine being stuck in a situation for 38 years. I want you to imagine that everyone around you is broken for 38 years. Everyone around you is carrying a wound for 38 years. All you've seen for almost four decades is sickness, illness, um, the agony. Think about nighttime when you're trying to rest and the city is quiet and you hear someone groaning in the corners from pain. This thing was five stories tall, built around built around a pool that was stirred by an angel. We, we don't know all of the details here. It's a very mysterious story. However, one person was able to be healed. The first one in. And Jesus shows up there and he says, do you really want to get well? 38 years is a long time. It's a long time to think like, like being in sickness. It's a long time to be surrounded by sickness. It's a long time to have a question mark. It's a, it's a very, you've probably built your faith around this sickness. So do you really want me to change your life? Is it worth it? Is it worth it for me to even be alive? Is it worth it for me to stay? Should I just go home and die peacefully? Is it really just worth it? And here's, I'm going to make one point today, and here it is. You can be in the right place, but have the wrong outcome. You can be in the right place, and something terrible happens. This happens so often in Scripture. Noah was in the right place, okay? He did everything he was asked. He was the one family God said, I'm going to save you because I see you. I know what you've done. I see your deeds. Here's the plan. Work the plan. I'm going to save you. They got on the boat. It started to rain. That boat started to float. He was in the right place. But how many of you know the boat stank? Come on, somebody. Ain't no way. You can't put enough windows in that thing. Sometimes you're in the right spot and it stinks to be there. 
You've made a good decision. It's part of God's will. You're up for the challenge. You've said yes. You've gone the extra mile. You've forgiven people. You've been kind. You're doing all the things that Christians are supposed to do as they follow Jesus. But the situation just stinks. You're still in the right spot. There was a son of a prophet in the book of Kings, they went to just build a new place. And he lost an axe head. Right place. I'm doing the right thing. I'm expanding the, the kingdom. And I've lost the most important thing for this task. Right place. Wrong outcome. Eutychus. Most of you don't even know this name. Eutychus is known for one thing. He was listening to Paul preach, fell out a window, and died. How would you like for that to be your claim to fame? Yeah, that guy was great. I don't know if you know anything about him, but he fell out a window during a sermon. He did not just bump his head. He died. What a terrible sermon. Right, right place, right? Wrong outcome. Uzzah, priest, from a family of priests, great story, great lineage. They've been trusted with the ark of God. That brother reaches out, puts his hand on it, dies. Maybe his intention was great. I just want to help. I want to prevent this. Right place, wrong outcome. Mary gave birth to the Son of God. Wow, incredible. When he was 12, she lost him. You guys ever lost your kid in Walmart? And then somebody else brings them to you and the look they give you? Found your kid. Might want to keep an eye on them next time. You know, you just swallow hard. You want to punch them in the throat, but you just receive them. Thanks, appreciate you. She lost him. The Savior of the world. Joseph, have you seen? No, I thought he was with you. You know how it plays out. Can you imagine the panic? I wish the Bible included it, but they didn't, and I'm sad about it. They find him, but she lost him. Let me tell you how, how this translates to us quickly. You can follow Jesus. Hear my heart on this. I want to pastor you well, and this is why I'm saying this as strong as I possibly can. You can follow Jesus and you can lose a marriage. You can follow Jesus and file bankruptcy. You can follow Jesus and have rebellious children. You can follow Jesus and be terminally ill. You can do the things and you can check the boxes and you can be a person who is pursuing the goodness of God and have terrible outcomes. My roommate in college, he died at 45 from COVID. My sister was an incredible pastor. Her church... And my, my, my brother-in-law, they loved them. 
But she died at 49 from cancer. These things make us ask, is it worth it? And we think, why does God do or not do some things? And man, we, we explore scripture and we look through and we go, man, why, why, why is all this happening? But let me tell you why it's worth it. Then I'm going to land, land this very quick. So worship team, you can get ready. Let me tell you why it's worth it. Without your life experience, hear me, without the sweetness of your story, without the mountaintops and the valleys below that, that you've explored both, without these questions, without the rigidity of life, you and I would never truly know the goodness of God. We would never really know his ability to sustain you. And there's some of you in this room today and you think to yourself, I should, I should have lost my mind by now. But I haven't. Why? Because he's kept you. Because he has sustained you. Because there's something in you that is filled with His Spirit and there is hope in you. Amidst hopelessness, if you add it all up and you get out your calculator and you, you look at all of the things and you, you're going through it intellectually, you shouldn't be making it at all. But you are. And you're here today And your story is hard, but there's a win in there. And if you could just see three or four pages ahead, you would know that. that God has this uncanny ability to turn something around. If it were not for the questions in our lives, You'd never know that the grip that God has on your soul is greater than the grip of any sin you've committed. If your life wasn't hard, if you never raised your head up to God and said, is it worth it? Then you'd never really understand that the hand that spans the universe is the same hand that carved the valley that you're in right now. The experience of God is worth it. I want you to stand with me all across the room today. Just stand with me. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 6, then we're going to give God some praise. We're going to go into worship. Hebrews 6, 19, this is what the author says. He says, we have, I want you to, to look, look at this. We have this hope. As what? An anchor for the soul. That's not a mistake. He's giving us a clear image that a ship without an anchor can be driven anywhere. But a ship that is anchored, the surface level, you're going to feel the movement, but you're not going anywhere. 
He's going to hold you firm. He said, we have this hope. It's an anchor for the soul, and it is firm, and it is secure. He is speaking to your question today. Whatever it is, whatever question mark you carry into Advent, whatever question mark you've got right now that you start this incredible season of reflection with, he said, whatever it is, I want you to know that we have a hope. It is an anchor for you. It is firm, and it is secure. And when all this is over, your life will still be in the same place. The sun's going to shine, and the sea is going to still, and you're going to know it was His hand that kept you. Because you're going to look at your storm and the size of it and the noise it made and go, how in the world is my life still together? Because He was an anchor amidst all of it.